Welcome to the Week in IndyCar on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by the awesome, awesome folks at Cooper Tire and the equally awesome Justice Brothers, makers of fine automotive chemicals, lubricants, and just everything to make your vehicle super extra happy. This week we have a good, good friend of the show, that being 2012 IndyCar Series champion and 2014 Indy 500 winner, Ryan hunter Ray of Andretti Autosport. We're also joined for the first time by the really, really impressive and highly athletic, as you will find out, Brian Bellardi, team owner of the Bellardi Auto Racing Program on the road to Indy. Brian also is now entering into his second Indy 500 as one of, I believe, three or four entrants with James Davidson's uh, program there. So great to catch up with Brian here. So we'll kick off with good old RHR, then move on to the man in charge of BAR. And then as I've been doing of late, going to move the Q&A that you have for me, going to move that to the end, because why? Well, I just assume you come here for the guests not for good old Mr. Yappity Mouth Dude with his podcast. So, anyways, uh, let's see. A couple notes for you up front before we get to our man, Mr. Hunter Ray. Got the Barber IndyCar Weekend coming up. I'm actually going to have to skip that, have some matters on the home front that are uh, requiring attention. Uh, Let's see, another great note which came through here. I mean, we're speaking on April 2nd. Saw a note come through from Racer. Speaking about March being the biggest month of traffic for Racer.com in the site's 20-plus year history, uh, that's awesome. <laughs> it's truly, truly awesome. A couple of IndyCar races, NASCAR in there, F1 kicking off its season. Uh, we obviously had IMSA at Sebring along with the WEC at Sebring. So a lot of great events, but also you know just some great stories and whatnot. So. I love seeing that kind of thing at a time where gaining audience size and traction, you know, from television to you name it, seems to be flat or losing battle. It is genuinely heartening to see that Racer is indeed growing and growing on the digital side. Can also mention here little quick super blowing of trumpets that I believe I mentioned last week. We did surpass 2.5 million downloads for the good old MP podcast since we launched in May of 2016 and with March having closed as well that would be three straight months in 2019 where we have seen a little bit over 20 percent increase in traffic year to year uh, from January 2018 February and March as well so just really cool I guess seeing here too that uh, we've had a, a pretty healthy spike in traffic in downloads each month and that is 1000% responsible to y'all so thank you truly truly thank you um i don't know i'm blushing i don't know if you can see it through uh through the, the your headphones but i'm blushing thanks again for that on the topic of long beach coming up after barber the week after been working with our friends at the track, the uh, Grand Prix at Long Beach Association, also our pals at Acura and Honda to try and put on a Acura slash Honda IndyCar slash IMSA combo live event, knowing that Acura is now the overall event of, the overall sponsor of the event. Proving to be tougher than anticipated, probably because I'm not as 
present as I should be in my good old brain, but been looking to try and find a 30-minute window where we can bring together a couple members of the Accurate Team Penske IndyCar IMSA program. Good Lord, my brain's all over the place. Try and bring two folks from Acura's IMSA DPI effort, one or two, probably two drivers from Honda's IndyCar world, and we're still trying. Uh, as you might imagine, as I probably, uh, what's the, misunderestimated, there we go, one of my favorite words. Uh, it's a little bit of a taller order, uh, trying to pull off two series, three teams, all finding a spot that works uh, before everyone gets crazy busy. We'll see if it happens. I hope that it will, but if it doesn't, there are plenty of other events on the calendar, and I've had a couple of other tracks reach out and say, hey, what can we do at our particular event? So there's more coming. Hope we'll have one at Long Beach. If not, uh, a bummer, but not the end of the world. Here's something kind of cool. Our friends at torontomotorsports.com really do have a treat to offer, especially for fans of the Kart IndyCar series in the 1990s. Obviously being Canadian, they have a particular affinity for one of my favorite drivers, that being Greg Moore. So they've printed a batch of Greg Moore stickers. It's a cartoon that Roger Wark did of Greg in one of his Kart uh, IndyCar uh, liveries and pointing the number one out while driving and Toronto Motorsports owner Derek Kosica told me that this batch, this new batch that they have run of stickers is almost gone and where I enjoy this is the sales benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation so it's uh, yet another charity thing that I'm giving a big thumbs up to so Derek tells me that they cost six dollars and ninety-nine cents in Canadian dollars that is five dollars and seventy-three cents in US dollars so if you're a fan of good old G Moore uh, pay a visit to torontomotorsports.com and grab a few stickers and support a worthy cause. All right, let's get going with our leadoff hitter, Ryan hunter Ray. then move on to our man, Brian Bellardi, and then I will finish up at the end covering off your Q&A that you sent in for me to answer on the Week in IndyCar, presented by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Ryan hunter Ray, it's always awesome when you pay a visit to the Week in IndyCar here. Uh, champ, got a lot of great questions as usual, and uh, we're going to start off with just a couple of fun ones here as you head into Barber. Uh, let's go to Nathan DeRover, who says, early congrats to Ryan for winning Barber, and he mentions that because I had Colton Herta on just before Circuit of the Americas, and he won there, so I guess there's uh, an assumption that if you come here, you're going to win the next race. So if you do... I mean, I don't know what I get. Some butter balls? Do I get free DHL shipping? I don't know. We'll figure. Uh, we'll figure that I'll out. I'll hook you up. All no right. problem. That that would be good if that if that trend continues. I like it. Continuing on the theme, our pal Ryan Terpstress asks, "Which Acme Go Fast bits do you have on the car for Barber?" He says, "I'm a big fan of Rocket Skates, so I think I created a pro. I don't know if it's a problem, but with this cartoon anvil thing." I mean, I've been using that, that expression for a decade in what I've been writing, but damn it, man, it seems like it's kind of become yours. Yeah, it does, unfortunately. I like, you know, I like the rocket skates. I think, um, you know, just basically tying rockets to anything, you know, <laughs> tie, just, just with a rope or any of that is, is my Acme go-to, so. All right, well, let's get to your first, let's say, real question here. This comes in from Jordan Darwin. He says, Ryan, you've been very loyal to Michael Andretti for sticking with you, uh, especially when you were, were struggling to find a, a permanent home in IndyCar. He says, any good stories you can share or maybe inquiries you've offered from other teams who were 
interested in your services, but you ultimately chose to stay with Michael, as he mentions, out of loyalty. Well, I mean, I'm a loyal person, and, you know, um, I think you look back at my career, and, you know, I had a good run going at Ray Hall when, uh, when ethanol pulled out, and all of a sudden I found myself kind of, you know, just another another situation where I was a journeyman trying to find a, find a home, and uh, thankfully Tony George kept me in the series with Vision, and then I went over and filled in for Vitor Mira after his crash at IMS, so, I, you know, at that point, um, I had a really good run at Mid-Ohio, started talking to Michael a little bit then, and, and he stuck his neck out for me, you know, and put me in the car for three races, uh, probably could have taken somebody else on that, that was paying money, and he put me in for three races, and, um, you know, we really hit the ground running. I think our first race together was <clears throat> Sao Paulo, finished second, uh, then won Long Beach, and, and it, it really took off after that. So um, I really pieced it together, though. I mean, it wasn't an easy, um, you know, plug-and-play situation. It, it was tough to put it together, and we put the whole season together. And, you know, I I am I am loyal for that reason that, uh, you know, obviously I found a great home in Andretti Autosport, and, and um you know, I don't regret anything. Um, it's been a great run. We've been together, what, 10 years now, and uh, we've won a lot of races, championship, 8500. So, um, yeah, there's been some offers there, <laughs> some some that, um, you know, I've that I've that I've passed on. But, I like I said, I have no regrets. We've accomplished a lot together, and we've got a lot more to go. It's a good little add-on here. Michael, I love Michael. Michael's maybe not the perfect person to always stick a microphone in front of, right? There's some folks who are just always perfect, polished, every word's exactly placed exactly where it should be. Right. Uh, I wouldn't say that's necessarily one of Michael's strengths, and as a result, I think he takes some heat. I mean, I give him some heat every now and then, too, when he steps on certain appendages, but you you do raise a great point. Uh, Even though he might not always be the, the... easiest or most clear guy he is beyond just loyalty he's all about trying to give people shots and opportunities in ways that i don't think he gets enough credit for so i'm not taking any shots at him i'm just saying that there's some folks where it's always just easy to heap praise on them michael as at least i've seen not always as easy for folks to do that with him and I think that does a little bit of a disservice because he really truly is a good guy and he really truly is trying to do good things for drivers when he is uh, when it's possible so then you again are, are that shining example of hey we might be able to do something good together and jesus 10 year anniversary or whatever i mean that's uh that's pretty yeah amazing, man. Um, no I, I mean that's a great point that you brought up for sure and he's he's a racer um and, and that's that's his bottom line is, is winning races and um he's a driver you know he, he so he knows that um you know what drivers need and and how he can pick up um you know the right additions when he needs them and gives guys shots like you said um whether that's crew guys within the team engineers moving up or drivers um absolutely he deserves a lot of credit for that let's go next to our friend andrew c uh who says Ryan, you're one of our American representatives in the race of champions. What's your take on the event? And do you have any memorable stories from traveling the world to race in stadiums? He also says it was nice meeting you in Baltimore in 2011. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, race of champions is good fun. I mean, it's obviously it's it's a group of drivers. Just being invited is a, is a huge honor because you're you're there with some of the best in the world. But um, 
It's really tough. Uh, at times, you may get the short end of the stick where you don't get enough time in the car that you're actually going to race. For instance, this past one in Mexico City, I ended up on that side of it. Just by chance, uh, you get to drive every car on Friday. Uh, I think it's like three laps in each car. Every car is different. Some are age patterns. Some are paddle shift. Um, some have a clutch. Some don't. Um, some you break with your left foot. Some with your right. Some <laughs> you're in second, third, first, fourth gear. It doesn't, you know, it, they're very different cars and they handle differently. So when you only get three laps in it and then you go, the next time that you're in the car is maybe Sunday on a you know go or go home deal a go or go home race um it, it's tough to put it all together but the event itself um they do such a great job with it um frederick johnson does and his team do a great job in putting it all together and putting on a great show it's a fun show and, and we have a lot of fun together but certainly i want to do better there um i've advanced to i think the quarterfinals a few years ago but i i haven't been able to get onto the semi and and move my way into the final yet so something i want to do but um you also kind of get need to get a little lucky on on practice time our friend Nick Vance says th- you got a lot of folks thanking you for taking time with them to take a photo and otherwise, which is pretty cool. Uh, he said he was walking alongside you and a couple of your crew guys at St. Pete after one of the sessions, and uh, you guys were discussing trying something different with the diff. And so a little bit of a opportunity to explain the technical side here, Ryan. He says, well, he asks, what specific change were you looking to try out, um, et cetera, et cetera. But maybe if you could just share... Outside of the obvious things folks see, uh, turn a front wing kind of thing, or maybe uh, the spanners coming out for a ride height change during the session, uh, give folks an idea of what you might be asking for with a diff change, knowing that that certainly isn't something you're going to have time to do during the session, but if there's enough between uh, a couple hours between sessions, that is something you could ask the guys to carry out. Yeah, it's interesting. In, in sports cars like an IMSA, you know, it's it's pretty seldom that you do diff changes. You kind of stick with, with the differential that you have in the car, the diff settings that you have in the car, um, and get on with it and, and tune the dampers, shocks, ride heights, aero, and all that stuff. But in IndyCar, we, we actually, you know, we, we use differential changes as a, as a pretty key setup item, um, and it really comes into play, I think, more at street courses, you know. Um, you're trying to get that... That, that happy medium uh, between uh, having the car rotate a bit and through these 90 degree corners that are low grip, you're trying to get the car to get through the corner, get it turned as fast as possible so you can get back on the power. The problem with getting too aggressive with the diff setting is that then uh, if you're too open on coast, let's say, as you come into the corner, um, you can get too loose as you're trying pushing harder and harder and qualifying. You can get loose on entry and then if the car is already starting to slide through the mid-corner because you've been too aggressive on the diff, then you have problems putting the power down. So the two are to work together, uh, the coast side, the power side. You need to get that, like I said, that happy medium. And then for the race, it's a completely different deal too because you need to look after the tires. You don't, you, you don't want to be peak, peak you know, lap time, and then all of a sudden you're dealing with a car that's super loose or won't put the power down. Uh, so it's very tough to get that right. Um, find that we're always kind of trying to, you know, narrow in on the on the sweet spot. Um, but a good race weekend is when you go there and you never never do a diff change. That means you're you're in the window. You can tell, having done many diff changes in my career as a young mechanic, uh, you can always tell when the 
change you've made is right or wrong based on the driver's eyes when they come in because they're either completely wide open because as you mentioned it's oversteer on entry then dragster <laughs> on the way out yeah and the thing you feel like did you just make a change to try and throw me into the wall kid what the hell's going on or you either get man this thing's an understeery pig you really hope that you just get smiles but yeah you can certainly tell when you have gotten it wrong just another quick note here and hey they're sending them in so i just want to make sure you're hearing them this comes from our pal jerry suddeth who says I'd like to thank Ryan for being exceedingly kind to my wife at an autograph session at Mid-Ohio, Mid-Ohio several years ago. He says, all the drivers were polite, but she said you went above and beyond, and she really appreciated it. We were fans of yours before, but even closer fans after this encounter. And I know you hear this, you know, you, you hear this stuff from time to time, but I just think it's important for drivers to not only get that feedback, but to just realize that, you know, that 30 seconds you might have spent with uh, Jerry's wife or a minute or whatever, just sharing whatever. It's amazing how these things last so long and make such a huge impact. Yeah, no doubt. And it's great to hear those stories, that feedback, you know. It, it's tough on race weekends. IndyCar is very accessible. That's the one key thing that we have that other series don't. You, you can get right up close and personal with the cars, the drivers, the teams, the crews, and that's a great thing. Um, but on race weekends, unlike football or basketball and, and all these other professional sports, we're constantly at it. You know, we're at it. Sponsor appearances, functions, meet and greets during the race weekend, autograph sessions, um, you know, fan interaction stuff. And it, it, the fans are what matter. That's what makes our our livelihoods possible without filling the seats without people being there buying the tickets we don't have you know we don't have a race series um so absolutely i I was on the other side of that too growing up i was just an indycar fan and i remember drivers you know really as a kid going there taking their time you know i remember one time greg morris sat there and talked to me about karting for like 10 minutes it was the biggest highlight of my year um just because he he took the time to understand you know hey what are you racing well you know what are you going to do next and how's the race season going i felt like i was talking to superman and that really you know that really resonated with me it 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 carried on and it it's part of who I am today, for sure. And we, we all, all the drivers in IndyCar are very good with it, and we try and take as much time as we possibly can. Um, but that said, it is a tough schedule. It's busy on a race weekend. You know, every minute of the day is accounted for. So sometimes we go whizzing by and don't stop for that autograph because we're getting to the next spot to go sign some more. Let's go to a fun question here, and uh, we could probably fill the rest of our remaining time answering it, but I'm just throwing it in because it, it, it brought a smile and a little bit of a chuckle to my face. Uh, Mike Stoops uh, says uh, a couple of questions, but the last one uh, regarding Champ Car. Did you ever experience any dire situations with any of the teams you were on? <laughs> Is there, uh, there any? I don't, again, man, I know I'm fishing here. Was there maybe, I don't know, one team that stands out that was a bit of a, a, a bleep, a poop show, maybe? Uh, one that maybe you were embroiled in, I don't know, what, uh, th- 12, 13 years of a lawsuit? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I had a pretty rough go at uh, Rocket Sports, and you know, it, it was it was definitely you know I think it made me tougher as a person, and it was just uh, it was it was no good from beginning to end, and thankfully, thankfully, I went on to have an IndyCar career, a racing career after that. Um, I didn't have a ride for almost two years uh, following that, and started racing you know super late models at Irwindale and. Just started doing some random stuff, racing, you know, Porsche GT3 car and Grand Am, and uh, definitely started from the bottom again. And 
and um, clawed my way back up. So, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Our friend Ben from Twitter has a question related to this weekend's uh, race at Barber Motorsports Park in Alabama. He says, hey, Ryan, Barber has a lot of elevation changes and off-camber crests, especially turns 12 and 13. He asks, how do you manage throttle and steering input in situations where the car gets light or there's a sudden change in weight balance to one side? A bar is very tough for that. You know, it seems like any corner that you're going through that's somewhat high speed, either the track's falling away, you're going downhill, which which would would, would basically cause understeer, or you have an incline where a compression occurs and the front grabs and then the rear gets light. Um, so especially through that section that he mentioned, 12 and 13 through there, it is very tough to get it right. You're coming in there in sixth gear. It feels like you're doing Mach 1, and um, you're trying to get the car set up so that through the compression of uh, I think 13 it is coming up the hill um, the car is somewhat straight because if you have a lot of wheel angle in it at that compression you're going to get the front to grab which is going to dominate the rear of the car and then over rotate and uh, it's tough it's bumpy it's a bumpy little section there and it's all about placement really car placement and it's about where your hands are in those key areas of the racetrack um, you know some of the hardest corners I feel at Barber like those ones I mentioned that are falling away with yeah, yeah. the tracks going away from you going downhill and you just can't do anything to make the front work any better you can only go so far the tires only going to work so well when when the track's falling away from you so it's, it's definitely a tricky racetrack for many reasons here's a very serious question that comes in from george senny if rhr could have any other three letters as his nickname what would they be <laughs> if rhr could have any, any other three letters as my nickname man I, I came up with one, but, I, you know, I don't want I, I can... Let, Let's hear it. I don't even know where to start with that. Man, three letters. I'd say BMF. BMF. Bad, Bad mother effer. Yeah. Bad, I mean, yeah. you know. I, I like it. BMF RHR. Hey, there we go. That has a nice ring to it. See, we're, we're, com- we're solving problems here in the week in IndyCar Podcast, my man. Uh, let's see. Great one here from Andy Merrick. He says, Ryan, who are, can you name one or two people besides your family who helped you break through in your early racing days? Oh, wow. There's a lot. For sure, my dad, um, you know, I have three boys now, so I can only imagine the, the time it takes to pretty much give up your entire social life and just go after, you know, hooking a trailer up to the back of a truck and, and going to go-kart tracks all up and down the uh, eastern seaboard. So I can, I, you know, obviously, it, and it didn't stop there. Um but I would say my dad, obviously, and then the Skip Barber organization. You know, I won the karting scholarship. That got me a year in Formula Dodge. I won the Formula Dodge National Championship. That moved me into – I won the big scholarship as well, which was then got me into the Barber Dodge Pro Series. And then I won um, another year in the Barber Dodge Pro Series from the Rookie of the Year deal. So uh, Skip Barber, you know, the organization really bridged a big gap for me. Getting And that gap is getting from go-karts to – the upper level of cars because there's no exposure for sponsors down there in that area and it's tough to really make that happen so skip barber was big um you know for years i had an investor in my career and he uh you know it it, it, it was crucial to get me into atlantics and my and into probably halfway through my first year in, in champ car so um there's there's been a lot i mean it, along the way I, I could think of you know Jean Marchioni, the guy that ran me in carts as a Tony Kart factory driver in the U.S., uh, really opened a lot of doors for me in karting. And um, 
there's there's certainly been a lot of them. Um, I, I you know you, you, uh, along the way, you know, coming up to the ladder, there's 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 guys that uh, you know took extra time to work with me and um, could be here all day listing, and that's what it takes to make a, a career in racing. It's not not easy, not a straightforward path. Well, at least you're trying to get. Hopefully, we'll see one of your sons fall on that path, and you know, keep the uh, the Indy 500 winning money flowing in when you're hitting retirement. You need a new, <laughs> That'd be nice. a new boat for fishing or something like that. Yeah, well, that's top of the list. Yes, of course. Uh, let's go to Curtis Boggs. I love the thing I love about my listeners is that the questions aren't necessarily linear, and that, to be honest, that's the thing I love most about doing these podcasts. This comes in from Curtis Boggs, who says, "Ryan, how many miles?" On the Camaro you received for your 2014 Indy 500 win, was de- what was the delivery process like? Ship direct from Chevy, pick up at a local dealer, etc. So we're talking pace cars, man. Yeah, man. I couldn't wait to get that car. Obviously, winning the Indy 500 was huge, and um, that was that was com- that was like the first really track designated car that they had come out with um, in quite some time. Um, I mean, it is bare bones, pretty much race car. Uh, there's no trunk liner in it. There's no spare tire. The stiff, the the the, the shock settings, the springs are super stiff. The ride height's low. Um, it has race tires on it. Basically, these um, you know track tires. You do not want to drive that thing in the rain. I was on the highway driving that <laughs> from a from an appearance out here in uh, I think the Cleveland Clinic Cancer Center out out west here in Fort Lauderdale. Driving home in the in a big downpour, and this thing was walking all over the place, just doing a straight line. <laughs> I was like, I couldn't imagine what the headlines would be if I stuffed this thing in that wall at I-95 or something like that. Um, so, yeah, the the delivery was done at Auto Nation, Fort Lauderdale, Chevrolet. It was pretty cool. They had a whole setup done, kind of ceremony type deal where it came in and it was in the middle of the showroom floor. So certainly wow. it received um, it received a pretty cool welcoming. And, you know, I don't have that many miles on the thing because it's so stiff and it's so hard to drive around town. I, I, I love it. Um, but I think I have... Uh, six or seven hundred miles on it the most i think we did was james hinchcliffe and i at uh at palm beach international raceway for our big cancer uh racing for cancer event we were taking people around in it and um man things it's a hoot to drive it's a lot of fun now see if you were to stuff the thing on the highway the first call you'd receive mark royce see ain't so easy huh pal (laughs) right yeah okay Uh, uh, sorry, and and I digress. Uh, now this might seem like a, a, a sponsor plug, but look, we're we're not worried about that stuff. We're just trying to tell good stories. Comes in from William Matson who says, Ryan, uh, for quite a while it seemed like each Andretti car had a new sponsor on it every race. Yet you seem to have one of the most consistent sponsorship packages in the series. He's curious, how did the relationship with DHL start? And what have you done to maintain it for so many years? Uh, DHL has been so, I mean, critical to our team, to my career. Um, they've been loyal. Uh, we've had a great run, and, and they just continue to be so supportive. They're like family to me. Um, so, yeah, and then having that continuity, I think, you know, the 28 DHL car, it, it's one of those cars now that you can immediately identify with, right? It's one of those, it's almost like on the level of, of seeing a target Ganassi car or something like that. You know that's an Andretti Autosport 28 car that I that I drive, and it, it, it's pretty cool um, to have had that 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 security and that continuity over the years. But uh, yeah, we're um, I think we're in the second year right now of a three year deal, and where it goes after that, we'll see. But uh, it's been beneficial to other partners in in the paddock as well. Um, DHL's done you know business deals with them and logistics. Um, 
you know, with, with, with them, including Honda. Um, so certainly it's a, uh, it's a working relationship and, um, you know, it's not just, uh, pl- plastering decals or, or branding all over a race car. It, it, it is, it is a business. And that really typifies the Andretti Autosport approach. And this is going back, you know, a, a decade and more, uh, back with 7-Eleven and so on, just really typifies this. We're not asking you to just give us a check. And then, as you said, we'll slap some stickers on the car. It's, okay, uh, how do we make this relationship work for you as a business in the paddock to help grow your footprint and some of this might be painfully obvious, uh, if not uh, sounding really simple, but for the most part, the days of write big check, put sticker on car, those are getting fewer and fewer and fewer. So when you look at someone like a DHL, it's important to know they're not just there because they like spending money on racing. It's because they found in the IndyCar paddock there's money to be made and there's Absolutely. benefit yeah, and value sure. and you go okay now that's sustainable the you know the company that forks out a couple million or whatever for a year or two and goes away you and i've seen that happen a million times when you give a company a real business reason to invest year after year like okay that that's one of the things that makes me confident about where indycar is headed uh let's see let's go to our pal vincent venegas who says Ryan, any chances of doing more yellow parties in the future for Racing for Cancer? My wife and I, your biggest fans, would love to paint more yellow in the future to help the cause. And for those who don't know about your uh, Racing for Cancer program and the yellow parties, we should probably just start there. Yeah, well, we, we used to do yellow parties for Racing for Cancer, so we had them at St. Pete, Long Beach, um, you know, uh, Indianapolis, we've done them at Baltimore. Over the years, it's kind of shifted and changed, but uh, we focused heavily on the Indy 500. This year, we're doing Carb Day Karting, which is uh, which is a great uh, event. I think last year we had almost 80 people, which is it's the full on, basically um, race through four or five sessions. I think it, it narrows down to that final field, and everybody just had a blast doing it. And, and it's it's all for uh, you know. It's all for a good cause and, 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 you know, fighting cancer. So we've been focused on our race to beat cancer events, which we do once a year. It's usually Laguna Seca. This past year was Laguna Seca, Golf of Pebble Beach, Laguna Seca, and um, three-day or two-day school at Laguna Seca. And James Hinchcliffe and I are, are part of the instructors. We're out there racing with you guys, and it's just an absolute blast. So we've been focusing more on that. And uh, Vince does great work. He does some awesome paintings, and he's done some uh, some stuff that – you know of my car and of me in the car so it's pretty cool and i'd love to have them do more maybe we will do some more yellow parties in the future we'll have to see um where it's all going but uh right now we're focusing on that race to be cancer event every year it's been a it's been a big one for us yeah vincent's a pretty awesome and committed person all around and yeah knowing uh the the shared cancer fighting community from your story to so many other stories uh yeah boy that's something that uh, we would all love nothing more you would love nothing more than to shut down racing for cancer because there's no reason for it to exist anymore so i hope uh we see that see that in our lifetime all right a couple more questions my friend and then we're going to let you on to the rest of your day fun one here from greg fetchick who says ryan does it get messy organizationally with so many teammates especially at indy and are there ever team orders in a group that large other than don't wreck each other 
you know, I mean, just considering you're going to have to deal with Connor Daly for the month of May, do you get some sort of salary bump? Because that's almost hazard pay, man. Yeah, right. It's, uh, yeah, it's tough. When Indy comes around, I don't know how the team does it, to be honest, but um, certainly they, they continue to put out very strong cars at Indy, and um, our, our team definitely, when you consider the Harding, um, you know, relationship there, uh, or partnership there, and then you you consider adding another car to the Andretti stable, bringing it to five. That's six cars total. It's it's tough, uh, no doubt about it. But the good thing is you have more data to draw from. Um, you know, you have more drivers' opinions going around, and and drivers working with each other. The good thing is we all we all seem to work with each other really well. So it it, it is tough though, and I think it stresses the crew um, more than anything. Um, you know, I'm able to just focus on, on my job and work with my teammates, but uh, it's tough on them preparing all these cars because if you're going to do it, you got to do it right. And Dreddy, we're, we're, we're doing everything we can to do that. So Maybe we just, maybe you guys for the first couple days of practice in May need, need to wear the little name tags. Hi, my name is, you know, just to help one another know, oh, hey, how you doing? Pl- pl- yeah, absolutely. I think Connor should wear one. <laughs> That, you, all right, done deal. We need to make that happen. We might have to put it on his back, but that's all right. All right, yep. two more questions, my man. One comes in from Ed Joris, who says, Does the new 2018 Aero Kit uh, require or dictate a truly different driving style from, say, the 2017 with the manufacturer kit or even the original Aero Kit from 2012? Uh, and then he asks about, is setup philosophy any different and uh, how you do your job driving this universal aero kit. Yeah, I think this car has a little bit more aero on it than the 2012 um, DW12 had um, with that package. The difference between the manufacturer aero kit and this universal aero kit is, is just it's less downforce. So the car is more on top of the racetrack. It's moving around more. It's a bit more difficult to drive. And most importantly, it levels the playing field a bit. You know, you don't have the advantages of, uh, let's say, the Chevy aero kit on certain road courses or, or things like that where it was producing more downforce at certain speeds or, you know, the Honda kit having an advantage or a disadvantage here or there. Now it's basically the aero side of it is out. We're usually running max downforce everywhere we go. Obviously not Indianapolis, but, um, you know, everywhere else we're, we're usually running as much downforce as we can because we've peeled so much off. So it really, when it comes down to it, it it's just we're going faster in a straight line. And we're going a bit slower through the corners because we don't have as much downforce. And the cars, like I said, it's 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 a busier car to drive. It, it no doubt is. Um, you know, car placement is key, and and setup, getting the mechanical grip um, at its maximum is 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 definitely one of the uh, the huge items that you need to check off the list. Let's go to our last question from Jim Johnstone. He says, Ryan, being one of the handful of guys that drove in Champ Car, is there anything about the old Champ Cars that you wish would be incorporated into the next Indy Car? Uh, and is there anything the current car does better than the old Champ Cars? So as we look to that, what, 2022 or so, we think is when we're going to get the replacement for the DW12. We know it's meant to have more horsepower already. Is there anything else maybe on the chassis front where you go, ooh, if they brought that over from the old Champ Car era, that might be sweet? Yeah, um, I, I love the look of the Champ Cars. You know, the Lolas and the Reynards. The Reynard was, was one sexy car for sure, um, especially how we ended with it. 
uh, in 2003 with the big Renske, as we called it, front wing, the Penske uh, modified Reynard front wing. Um, I just love the look of those cars. I think one thing, and I, if I bring this up, there's going to be somebody that's going to say, well, we can't do that because, or it has a downside to it, but the, those, those champ cars had a wider track to them. Um, they just had a bigger stance. Um, obviously, the sound of the engines. I don't know what we can do about that, but the automotive industry is going to, um, you know, smaller engines, um, smaller displacement, turbocharged engines. So I, you have to be relevant in the auto industry. So I don't know if we can get that big screaming V8 sound back, but um, certainly you watch some of those champ car vids from late 90s, early 2000s, and the sound is something that immediately sticks out to you. Um, I think this car really looks great. They did a great job with it. You know, aesthetically, it is it is a great-looking car. Um, you know, I think we can tweak a little bit how the, the nose runs from the cockpit down to the front wing. That's my um, only point as well. If, whether it's raising it up a little bit, you, we, you couldn't change the DW12 tub itself with the latest Universal Aero kit, but yeah, uh, I think you're spot on. If we could just tweak the, the initial uh, thought of how the car looks when you look at the nose and whatnot back to the cockpit, you get that right, and this car is almost perfect. Yeah, there is a bit of a shortcoming there, and um, I don't know how to fix it, but you, it's exactly like you said. There is a tweak that, that could that could happen there, and it could make it look a lot even better than it already does. But they did a great job. Side pods look great. Rear wing, everything kind of ties together. I like the lower look of the car now with the roll hoop instead of the uh, air induction on the top, um, you know, through the roll hoop. So, it's yeah, I don't I don't think there's, there's a whole lot to do about, you know, engine sound. I would like that. We're going to get more horsepower, but I don't know if it's going to really change the note maybe we could tweak the exhaust settings a little bit but uh i mean you compare a uh, formula one uh video you know from from 2003 or 4 to now and it, it doesn't even sound like it's the same series so you know we're, we're, i would love that to happen but we'll see champ you were 23rd at the end of the first round after that damn cartoon anvil found you you're on the podium last round at coda heading into barber this weekend eighth in points and if things go well, you know, you could be leaving in the top five at least. Uh, I'm hoping things go well for you, my man. And then we got Long Beach coming up right after a little uh, little trip back to a place that's important to you from a family standpoint. So hoping yeah. uh, the next couple of weeks are kind to you, and we'll look forward to seeing you here soon. Thanks, man. No more cartoon anvils. Really hope they're... Uh... They're, they're not in the forecast, so that, that's, that's what I'm hoping and praying for. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, brother. Brian Bellardi, great to have you for your first ever visit. We got some great questions for you, my man. Why don't we jump right in, starting with Michael Goodyear, who says, Mr. Bellardi, of your previous drivers that haven't made it to IndyCar, uh, were there any that you were surprised on that front or saddened by that you thought they had the goods in Indy Lights, but uh, maybe somewhat surprised why they weren't able to make it to IndyCar? Well, the first driver that comes to mind is Aaron Tielitz. He was uh, obviously tremendously fast for us in preseason testing last year. Had the pole on the first race by a pretty good margin and was well on his way to a second pole, um, which he had already secured until he uh, brushed the wall in turn two um, and then to the outside in turn three. Um, just missed it by a couple millimeters, but uh, those are... You know, when you're on a street course, those are the things can, that can really set you back. Um, Aaron not being 
the most funded driver in the series. Um, he obviously had a lot of sponsors behind him. Um, I think that m- might have gotten to him a little bit mentally um, moving forward, but uh, that's somebody that I, I would love to see uh, get into IndyCar. And let's do a little follow-up here, Brian. I mean, this this kid from Wisconsin, heck of a talent. The story of that crash and then his efforts to make good on uh, the, the financial side, uh, looking after a destroyed chassis at round one, how that could, in theory, derail his entire season. You working with him to make sure that his season wasn't lost, but also his efforts to uh, repay and get that chassis, uh, that destroyed chassis, covered financially. I mean, that also says a lot about the character of Aaron, doesn't it? No, it absolutely does. I mean, it was a... Um it turned out to be quite a long night for the team. In fact, an all-nighter. Um, we, Carlin, um, actually was nice enough to what we were going to do is rent a car at the time. So we had to drive to Miami. My team manager, John Bernard, made that trip, and we ended up buying the car. Um, so it turned out to be an all-night, uh, one of those all-night thrashes that you never look forward to, but. Uh, they pulled it off and, you know, going into round two of the race, um, as luck would have it, he, unfortunately, he was taken out again um, and the exit of turn two and going into turn three. So it was really, it was heartbreaking, to be honest with you. That was something that I still think about quite often, unfortunately. Well, having spoken with Aaron, who's a part of the AIM Vassar Sullivan IMSA program this year during the endurance rounds. He did tell me there's pretty strong hopes and belief at minimum he'll be able to test an IndyCar this year and I know that he and the team are working hard just to try and come up some money to hopefully allow him to do his first IndyCar race. So I'm with you. Uh, I think that kid has something special in terms of personality, which IndyCar certainly needs. Also, being a young American with talent, seeing him in IndyCar would uh, that would only be a good thing too. So, uh, cannot disagree with anything you mentioned there. Here's a question from Corey Matthews, and we've got one or two a bit like this. Who says, uh, "What does the Indy Lights series need to grow? What kind of help does it need to become stronger? Is it finding ways to reduce costs, increase value?" Uh, more TV coverage to allure more sponsors. So, curious seeing how the Indy Lights car count is up a little bit over last year. But any thoughts if you got to play uh, uh, orchestrator for a day or for a year? Uh, some of the suggestions you might throw in. Well, I, I, with the series right now, they're doing a tremendous job over in Europe trying to uh, rekindle that flame, if you will. Um, because when I first started doing this series, there was quite a few European drivers, and they're also, I know they're working in South America as well. Uh, cost is always an issue, but you can only do so much as far as cost before you start sacrificing sacrificing what, you know, a, a product that you're trying to put on the track. So that's always a, a tricky, tricky part of the, uh, part of the equation. Um, I think, um, 
if IndyCar would become more involved again, which I know they're trying to do and have started doing, I think that would be important. And obviously, the TV package is is very big as far as sponsorship. So, um, and building partners and growth throughout that that aspect of uh, Indy Lights Racing. If we're looking at the TV side, obviously this year the big shift is going from being on cable, NBCSN, to full-time on uh, the NBC Gold streaming platform. At least on the surface, that appears like it would make your job a little bit harder in terms of being being able to offer a meaningful audience size. How do you negotiate or work in and around that, knowing that... You know, it is. It might not be the the biggest thing, since it's a training series, not necessarily the big marquee, you know, headlining series. But you know, eyeballs still matter, right? Yeah, and they well, they clearly do. Um, and one of the things that really concerns me about that transition is um, I've heard about it from quite a few people now. Um, I'm my biggest fear is that we lose more interest from the fan perspective, which we obviously don't want to do. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, you're really looking at um, the future of IndyCar as well. So when that happened, I was a little disappointed, uh, to be perfectly honest. But um, I am not the position that makes those calls. Um, cool. So right now we're dealing with it as best as we can. But, um, yeah, it, it does. It pre- pre- presents a... Uh, a little bit of more cha- more of a challenge, if you will, um, when you're trying to develop partnerships. Let's go to Jameen Tuttle. Great question. It says, Brian, is it possible to actually make money as a team owner on the road to Indy? Uh, yeah. I mean, thinking about that, there's usually investment that, that's a big part of every uh, formula type program coming up, whether it's United States or otherwise, is usually the team owner is investing in some way, shape, or form to uh, keep things going. But curious, can you? Is there a possible uh, black option instead of being in the red all the time? Uh, there is, and we have actually, um, we've found that path. It's, uh, I certainly don't live my lifestyle the way I do um, because of that business dynamic in, in racing, but um, that that's always a goal as a businessman to make sure you, it's in the black instead instead of the red. And there are ways to do that. Um, there are certain business models, and there's teams that I've followed that have come before me that have seemed to work. And um, I kind of you know I was picking and choosing what I thought was best, and so far, not kind of what it's worked out. I love hearing that. All right, we've got four more questions for you, Brian. This next one's actually from a fellow Brian, our pal Brian Cohn, who says, Do you have any long-term plans in the works to expand into IndyCar, IMSA, or any other series? And he says, I've enjoyed watching your team grow and succeed since we raced together in SCCA club racing and wish you and the team continued success. Uh, he also asks, does Chuck still work for you? First of all, I'd like to say hello, Brian. Um, but Chuck, uh, Chuck does not, Chuck works on a part-time basis now. He has a, a successful vi- business of his own. Uh, he's also part of the IndyCar ministry, um, which he 
thoroughly enjoys, which is which is always nice to see when somebody's following their paths and their dreams. So, but he is still based out of Bellardi Auto Racing. Um, to get back to Brian's question, the original question, it yeah, we we are definitely looking to try and go into IndyCar. We've also taken a long look at IMSA. Um, with teams such as uh, you know John Church, obviously uh, kind of grew up along the way with him in this originally, and um, I'm happy for his success right now. Um, so yeah, there there is a future that we're looking at. Um, it depends on the timing of events with a new chassis coming out in IndyCar, and you know, I, I learned from I'm using a model from another team which I won't name. We started out doing um, Indy 500s, which eventually grew into a, uh, a significant Indy car team. So, yeah, that, that is part of my plan. You mentioned the IMSA side as well. Are there any things you've been able to glean so far, Brian, looking at the expansion model, or I shouldn't say model, but uh, results maybe of, say, uh, a home coast racing, right? If you look at what Ricardo's done uh, on the road to Indy, Expanded into IndyCar has two uh, fully prepared and ready-to-go chassis moved into IMSA this year in the DPI formula with Cadillac and at least just looking at 2019 It appears he's having an easier time finding drivers finding the funding to run in sports car racing top-tier sports car racing than IndyCar at least with the assessments you've done are you seeing one as maybe being easier budget-wise, driver funded, driver-wise, etc., or things looking uh, almost equal? Well, those are things that uh, John Bruner, again, my team manager, we we've sat down and studied that, and um, I'm not sure so much. I'm not sure it's easier, but um, IMSA seems a little bit more lucrative. Um, to go up to that pro level, mm. highest pro level. But um, again, IndyCar, I'm an open wheel guy. I'll be perfectly honest with you. That's always been my goal and my dream, but um, racing all the way around, I'm addicted to. So, you know, whatever it takes to get wherever, I will do it. Um, I mean, I could watch two frogs race and I'd <laughs> probably have a good time. Yeah. So. I love it. All right, let's go to uh, another kind of inside baseball question here. Actually, inside football comes in from my pal Ralph Hibbard, who says, Brian, or, or for Brian, ask him about being the star tailback on two high school championship teams from 1985 to 1986 and then 87, 88 at Marquette High School. So when we spoke yesterday, you were telling me about your, uh, your MMA training and whatnot. I guess we also have a, a football background for you, too. Uh, yeah, that, wow, that's that's, impre- that's impressive. I, I I don't know where they're from, but uh, yeah, those were those are some good times and some good years. Um, we we did win two state championships at the division one level. Um, it was just uh, you know it was one of those things where it was a a, a tremendous team effort all the way around. Um, and it was exciting to be a part of because everybody, that's one of those situations where everybody has a common goal as there are in so many other things in life and you know what you want to achieve and when you achieve it, you, you feel like you're on top of the world. Um, there also is disappointment though because we should have won a third one um, 
and we unfortunately did not my junior year. But you know, that led to me, um, you know, being a priority walk-on at the University of Colorado for a time, and uh, you know, those are also times that I'll never forget. But um, you know, that's that's kind of the competitive nature I have. I mean, it comes from I, I transferred that into racing to my martial arts. It's just you know, it's just it's running in my blood. Athlete slash team owner. I love it, man. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> Uh, and as I mentioned yesterday, it's kind of fun when you see drivers get into it on track. There only There's only a handful that we know who are actively training in mixed martial arts or boxing where you go, all right, don't mess with that guy. I love the fact that as a team owner, you know, if there's another team owner that has beef, they just might think twice. You know, just be very polite if you're presenting your uh, the stated issue to Mr. Bellardi here. So that's also kind of cool. Uh, let's go to our uh, next to last question from Daniel Davidson. Uh, he says, Brian, will we see the uh, the James Davison Indy 500 entry, that being the Dale Coin Racing? This is the longest name, I think, in the field. Uh, Dale Coin Racing with uh, Bird Racing slash Family, uh, Bellardi Auto Racing slash Brad Hollinger Motor Racing, Motorsports, something like that. Um, Daniel's asking if we might see that sweet Ferrari-like livery that uh, young Mr. Davison used last year. Uh, we are still discussing that right now. Um, I think we might go a different direction, but um, it, right now it's still on the table. Um, obviously, with the being half Italian, I am very, uh, very partial to Ferrari. Um, I'm also half German, so... I, I also like Mercedes, but um, <laughs> so yeah, it's something that we're we're still discussing. I think we're getting pretty close to delivery for the car, and um, you will be able to see it in about four weeks. Well, knowing your driver uh, and that he's such a proud little peacock, you could either you could go with just putting his face on the side of the car. He'd love that, or maybe a cougar and me on the side pod, a little uh, Ricky Bobby homage. So, yeah, yeah. Anybody who anybody who has his uh, Nomex underwear with a bow tie printed on it, as Davison did in uh, IMSA for a while, I'm like, okay, you are a special little pony there, my friend. All right, yeah, let's... Uh, yeah, that, yeah, you, yeah, you definitely need to, um, need to be very confident when you're doing that. <laughs> He's the only driver I know of who, in his contract, requires five mirrors to be placed in every garage, wherever he is, so he can always look the prettiest. Um, I love love taking the piss out of James, so if I don't, he would he would be quite upset. Uh, let's go to our last question, and I save this one for last because I liked it the most. This comes in from our friend Andy Merrick, who's making a habit of sending in amazing questions each week. He says, Brian, from... Uh, from Dempsey's insane Freedom 100 win to Davison's bummer of a wreck at Indy last year, you've experienced deep emotions in motor racing, the highs and lows. He asks, what has that taught you about life? What about the highs and lows of racing have sat with you, uh, altered your approach to life, or given you new insights? Um, I, you know... I I've had highs and lows before that, just athletically. Um, again, with football uh, being injured and you know, pretty relatively effectively ending my career, but um, it, it 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 really teaches to be humble and be happy 
with the things that you have. Um, as a person, you never really want to take anything for granted. Um, and, and, and that's really, that, I mean, that's the most, but it, when the high, when you're high, when the highs are high, you want to enjoy them. And when the lows are at their worst, you don't want to get too down on yourself or anybody else. Um, I think that's very important in life. Um, and it's a great way, in my personal opinion, to move forward. And that's really, that's kind of how I live my life. So I'm appreciative for everything that I have, but when it's a bad day, it's a bad day. And there's a, you know, there's going to be tomorrow. It's kind of that Groundhog's Day mindset. And I do my absolute best to apply the same thing of waking up each morning and effectively treating it like absolutely nothing happened the day before. I'm not saying I forget those things, but instead of waking up with weight and baggage of whatever negative that might have happened, uh, I, I have found a rhythm for quite some time of waking up and saying, all right, man, this is a new day, a fresh day for everything to be awesome. It might not be, but just mindset-wise, that uh, opening your eyes and seeing the world as something with a, a clean slate and the po possibility for nothing but good. Um, yeah, that's not not the worst way to look at life there. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, you never, I mean, you're never, if it's a bad day, you, I mean, you, you don't want to forget it because there's always experience, you, there's always something you can learn from that. And how do I apply this to moving forward in my future? And that's kind of how I, uh, that's how I do it. Brian, thanks so much for taking some time, my man. Like I said, I'm looking forward to having you back on here soon. Hopefully, uh, if not sooner, let's plan on sitting down again. Maybe during the month of May, we do our Day at Indie series at the end of each day of running. So maybe you can come join myself and Robin Miller, and uh, we'll talk more about your uh, your second go-round as an Indy 500 co-entrant. And other than that, we'll look forward to seeing you here soon. Thank you. I really appreciate uh, being on your show, and... Um yeah, hopefully we can get together in May and, and uh, do it again. And that was the linebacker smashing, mixed martial arts practicing, Indy Lights team owner and Indy 500 co-entrant Brian Bellardi. Also thanks to RHR, I guess also known, a.k.a. BMF possibly, uh, for spending some time here as they, uh, I guess for Ryan in particular, getting ready for Barber and Brian getting ready for a busy month in Indianapolis. Let's get going with your questions. I'm going to kick off here with Paul Hirsch. He says, Marshall, you spoke about R.C. Enerson last week and how he did not get a fair chance. You also had Oliver Askew in your podcast talking about getting the necessary funds to race and how that is important. It would seem in the modern day that crowdfunding and a crowdfunding site might help drivers make the jump or be able to race, yet none of them use it. Connor Daly once talked about crowdsourcing and how it could negatively impact your chances of getting a ride. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, I don't know if I said RC uh, didn't get a fair chance, Paul. If I did, I apologize. I'm forgetting. Uh, I think I mentioned something along the lines of we didn't get a, a full sample of what he had to offer. We are impressed by what he's done so far, but certainly has not had the funding to maybe give a full representation of his skills or really develop that beyond two IndyCar races and a couple of tests. The crowdsourcing thing, the crowdfunding, that's the weird thing about motor racing in so many cases. 
Even in Formula One, you have some of the smaller teams that are clearly hurting for funding, will take just about anything. I'm not saying they would go the crowdsourcing route, but if you look at the road to Indy, so many of the kids there are just looking for enough to scrape in and keep going. Maybe if one of them has a, a not stellar year, they'll struggle to come back. Will their dream die? You'll have some IndyCar drivers who will make it there a little bit, then peter out after a little while. In theory, the, the crowdfunding thing could be a thing. I would just say that, you know, it's the weird thing about racing. Uh, or I should say it's a weird thing about this sport among so many others where in order to participate the participants are the ones that have to generate a whole heck of bunch of money to do it not just the driver side but the teams as well and in many instances we have teams that are looking to the drivers to be their source of cash to continue I'm not sure how deep the pockets would be for fans for drivers if we're talking about Here's a kid in, uh, you know, the middle tier of the road to Indy. How many folks are willing to step up and combine, put, I don't know, 500 grand in the kid's pocket, 600 grand on an annual basis? If we're talking RC, one IndyCar race, two IndyCar races, you know, it's going to be a couple hundred grand for sure. Get them into the Indy 500, granted, every team asks for something a little bit different, but most are looking for five, six, seven hundred thousand in some cases. There are others that will do it for a little bit less, but it's still a big number. Uh, then you look at a full season, teams really don't want to hear you uh, offering anything less than about five million, would definitely like six or seven, and again, not saying that pick the young driver's name uh, isn't worthy of such a thing, but that's a big nut. Uh, and I mean, here's maybe the other thing to close on. I love the idea of helping young, talented folks to get take the next step in their career, the, the reaching down to pull someone up. At least with the way my mindset works, if I am going to donate 50 bucks to something and I have the choice between a person who can't cover their medical bills, just had a big, you know, hit by a car and is is trying to cover something, can't pay for medicine, they had a house fire, you name it, some sort of like, oh my goodness, this is really tragic and or unfortunate, and this is a person who's on the brink if folks don't step in. At least the way my mind works, that's the perfect use of crowdfunding, crowdsourced uh, backing. Not that that can't be applied to motor racing, just it's an elective. Uh, if little Johnny and little Susie don't get to play IndyCar, it will suck for them. But we're not talking about, I would imagine, them being homeless, them living on the streets, them going hungry. So uh, if folks do have enough disposable income to help drivers do it, I guess it wouldn't be the worst thing. But as Connor mentioned, you know, if you're being seen as someone kind of hand-to-mouth having to look to fans to get you there, reputation-wise, it wouldn't help. It would probably only set you back in knowing that coming up with this fairly big number to play, probably unlikely. Uh, I, I just think he's seeing the negative connotations actually outweighing any of the positives, and I can't really disagree if we're talking, hey, my kid's $5,000 short, 
of signing a deal to race in Indy Lights or whatever else, I'd probably throw in a hundred bucks. But beyond that, um, I'd probably rather just donate to someone who's, uh, or a charity uh, that's trying to make the world better in some way. So that's at least the way my mind works. Doesn't mean it's accurate, but uh, I'm going to side with Connor on this one, Paul. Let's go to Ben Cohen, who says, Hey, I watched the F1 races last weekend, and Charles Leclerc's loss of power was described during the broadcast as an issue with his battery-slash-hybrid system. While I believe I read on Racer it may have been a cylinder issue, I wonder if there is something similar that could happen with an IndyCar. Is there an issue that could arise to limit horsepower, yet not disable an IndyCar completely? Uh, yeah, read the same thing, watched the same thing, Ben, and heard that it was a KERS-related item. I did notice that during the broadcast, when they started mentioning this, I think they went to maybe Lewis Hamilton's in-car camera uh, coming up on Leclerc, and we did see the uh, the rear, call it rain light, blinking, which meant that there was uh, the uh, Kerr's harvesting taking place, so that didn't really seem to fit the description of what the broadcasters were saying. Regardless, team mentioned a cylinder issue, and yeah, there is absolutely, if we are, are failing to distribute... Uh, spark to all six cylinders, which it doesn't happen a ton, but it, it can happen, then yeah, uh, that could certainly be a problem where you're running on five cylinders, maybe four, and you know, there are issues, there are situations where you can go the rest of the race that way. Probably not going to help the motor though if you do that. Another thing that happens, I would say, on rare occasion as well, could be a braking with a header. So just one of the six exhaust pipes, we want to call them that, one of the uh, six header tubes breaking, uh, we've seen that happen, or crack significantly, something where there's just not clean and efficient <coughs> distribution of the exhaust gases out through uh, the end of the headers, so or end of the collector, I should say. Uh, that could be something where there is a loss of power as well. So yeah, there are a couple things there that doesn't uh, necessarily involve a kerblamo and uh, the proverbial leg being thrown out of bed, uh, rod being tossed out the side of the block, and something else that leads to a uh, smoky and oily end. Gabe Argenta, and Gabe, thanks for always sending in stuff. Really do appreciate that. And to many of you who make a point each week to send in questions. And if you have friends who are IndyCar fans, I'd ask you uh, maybe uh, suggest they do the same. We're trying to widen our base here and reach more folks, so let them know. Ask some great questions of our guests, and uh, if you're really slumming it, you can send one in for me. Uh, Gabe says, hey, MP, the pulse on the third engine manufacturer rumor seems to be stronger as of late. What needs to happen to ensure the next one is not a repeat of Lotus in 2012? What should the series do to guide them, or is it more of a laissez-faire approach? Awesome question, Gabe. Definitely worth going back in history a little bit here with what took place with Lotus for those who maybe come into following IndyCar after this. So through the 2011 season, IndyCar had been using Honda as the sole supplier for engines. It was a naturally aspirated V8 motor, great motor, super reliable, did everything that was asked, was certainly looking for a return to manufacturer competition, multiple manufacturers. Honda jumped in when a uh, shift from that V8 to a small, what ended up being 2.2 liter twin turbo V6 motor came about for 2012. And Lotus joined in along with Chevy. Lotus was one though that I think 
uh, at the time, there were some concerns just from the outset. And not because the company is or was bad. The person running it at the time, Danny Bahar, I don't know if I'd accuse him of being the most serious person when it came to competition. But where things caused a raised eyebrow, if not lots of raised eyebrows, Gabe, is according to Randy Bernard, the former IndyCar CEO, which my colleague Robin Miller wrote about, I might have written about it as well, is they met, I don't remember where, I think at an auto show or something like that, sat down, and Danny committed Lotus to becoming IndyCar engine supplier. Great, amazing, fantastic, three brands, Lotus being you know, one that is great legacy, great history. Wonderful. On the, on the face of it, Chevy, Honda, Lotus, got something to work with here where things were curious and then ended up being the perfect representation of where things went wrong, Randy, uh, in the conversation, said, by the way, we're going to be doing manufacturer aero kits as well. Now, those ended up getting stalled, didn't happen, finally rolled out in 2015, but at least at the time, it was going to be a dual package, new engines and custom manufacturer-themed bodywork suggested that to Danny at the, after he committed to the engines, and he said, great, we'll do that too. And again, on the surface, boy, aren't they just all in, fantastic. The takeaway from Randy, or the concern at the time, was, huh, that seemed a little fast. That, that, that seemed a little, yeah, you bet, whatever, we're in. Without any due diligence on the aero kit side, the costs, I'm sure that Randy suggested, hey, these are pr the projected numbers but of what it would cost to do that. But regardless, it's just a takeaway of like, huh, that seemed a little bit too easy. And indeed, that's exactly what it was. So uh, come back to the primary question here, Gabe. It's just a very different administration that did not have any of the layers of, I guess you would just say basic thoroughness, basic completeness making sure things are done decently and in order. So where Lotus said, you bet we're in for whatever you got, and then did a deal with uh, my friends at Judd at Engine Developments in the UK, uh, would then learn quickly, both privately, and then we saw publicly uh, Lotus was spending pennies on the dollar compared to Chevy and Honda. Judd did their absolute best to make the most out of what they were given, but I'm guessing if they could go back in time and truly hit the rewind button to the point to where uh, John Judd's pen came off of the contract page and his signature disappeared, they would absolutely do it because it did not show what Judd was capable of. It showed that they were able to be there without any tools to succeed. So it was a c complete failure. Uh, just really, truly horrible. And it was all because Lotus overcommitted uh, verbally undercommitted financially, and they petered out and left at the end of the year, uh, tail between their proverbial legs. So I don't see and cannot imagine in any way, Gabe, that a new manufacturer coming in third, fourth, or however, would be allowed to go down that path, that same overcommit, underdeliver. Not saying IndyCar can or would protect a manufacturer from failure, but the, hey, this is what is needed, these are the finances involved, this is truly 
the way that this has to happen um, and then being very engaged in the process, not necessarily talking about IndyCar president Jay Fry being on the phone every day, but uh, could be his leadership within the technical, the competition department, and otherwise business development too. So I think uh, this is an area for me that at least is, is really a non-issue, and I can't really get into too much here uh, on this final aspect, Gabe, but IndyCar's approach to this today with new potential manufacturers it's a very thorough thing it's not a hey come on in it won't cost too much please it's a here's the full deck the full presentation both visual and printed of expected costs per year what a five-year commitment would cost both for ramping up manufacturing engines servicing those engines activating promoting putting marketing dollars behind this as well. It's a real, we're giving you the full picture here. This is what we think is the right number to target. You can spend more if you like. We're not saying you shouldn't, but this is where you need to aim. And if you aim any lower, don't really bother because no one's going to come out of this looking the way that you should. So I think although Jay wasn't, sitting in the room there with Randy and Danny Bahar and whatnot, uh, I think if you were just to look at IndyCar today and the way they go about things, mysteries, all mysteries that come to mind are really trying to be removed, being really upfront, saying, hey, we think you could do this, make a big splash compared to maybe other forms of racing you might be considering or even competing in today, and you might be surprised at how much it doesn't cost you to do that. So... Yeah, uh, I'm of the mind that a third manufacturer, when the new 2021 2.4 liter twin turbo V6 engines come online, third manufacturer, Gabe, I'd say that's a slam dunk. I've, I've almost moved my thought process to fourth being a very possible, if not probable thing. So good stuff uh and i don't know if you can hear the anticipation in my voice a little bit but i kind of can't wait for 2021 to get here not that i dislike the current car that we have uh the universal aero kit that makes it look a whole bunch better as we discussed with ryan hunter ray the power these motors are making today everything is pretty awesome also been staring at them for a while even though the bodywork has changed a little bit um you know yeah can't wait for 2021 to get here with some new motors and in theory provided there's nothing to change what they expect on the chassis front something new for 2022 uh let's see this comes in from pat o'day who says marshall who is the mystery driver slash owner combo you mentioned a few weeks back um, not exactly sure. If it was a while ago, uh, it was probably the Pippa Man AJ Foyt Racing affiliated leased chassis thing with the uh, uh, the Clawson Marshall Racing Program that was announced. And if it was someone else or something else, uh, just shoot me another notepad and maybe provide a little bit more context. I know this is probably sounds like a cop out, but with the amount of talking that I do each week into microphones and the amount of writing that I do, etc., etc., or video stuff, um, I try not to keep too many things retained unless they're absolutely necessary because I'm kind of challenged that way. But I appreciate you all just accepting me for who I am and my limitations. 
Uh, let's go to Thomas Gross. Love this one here. It says, guys, I'm curious why one team car is significantly faster than another. Uh, some difference can always be attributed to driving styles, but that clearly isn't the case if we look at Andretti Autosport with Ryan hunter Ray and Alexander Rossi, yet Rossi seemed to have a car that was faster than RHR at Coda. Is it setup choices, engine performance, or something else? So the great variables here, Thomas, we can mention, and it's certainly not limited to Andretti's multi-car team. Uh, number one, most obvious, but may, maybe the most uncomfortable, is talent. Uh, Ryan and Alexander, I would say, pretty darn equal in that department. One might have a little bit more strength here or there, but uh, it appears to be a bit of a wash. Now, I guess to add to that a little bit, when I say talent, I guess I'm not really referring to the amount of overall talent within them, necessarily. Maybe more of realizing, attacking, uh, opening, revealing everything that they're capable of doing. It's access, accessing the maximum amount of talent inside of them. And so it's a bit of a perfect scenario where we're talking about Ryan, multiple race winner, you name it, champion, Indy 500 winner, etc. Alexander now, not only Indy 500 winner, but multiple races, uh, you know, fighting for championships. So these two guys, there's no really 1A, 1B in the team. They're just number one. And you know on any given weekend, they are either nose to tail or, depending on misfortune, one of those two guys is going to be up front doing really great things. Then you look at a Marco Andretti. I do not believe Marco possesses a drop less of talent than Rossi or Hunter Ray. No, not even a question. That kid is as talented as the two of them. Accessing it, being in that place, I don't really want to call it the zone, you know, but just that thing where his talent, the full complement of that talent is always available, something he is able to tap into in an instant and stay there that's been his career-long challenge when it happens when he is just absolutely killing it i mean the guy is really hard to beat incredibly hard to beat but it's the consistency of tapping into it zach veach right a rookie now in his second season and we see the same thing i think that kid's got a lot of talent still don't know how much right i mean he's one season and two races into his IndyCar career, three races into his IndyCar career, but we've yet to see exactly how much talent he's playing with, but I believe it is an exceptional amount. Consistency, though, is the thing that with a young driver, you expect him to take that time to figure out how to be that person, be that star, or whatever level he has, live in that zone the majority of the time. So, and then you look at maybe another example that's very prevalent these days, and that's Simon Pagano, something that I've written about a couple of times. You know, we know Simon when everything is working, everything is clicking. He's a champ. The guy's winning races, the guy's an absolute elite. Just go home. There's no reason to even fight with the guy when he is on found that he's been struggling a little bit to find that level of dynamic performance, though. 
Uh, he's feeling good about where he's at this year and feels like the results don't reflect uh, how well he has been performing. I would just say that again, you know, you can look at some misfortune, you can see how some things don't go a driver's way. Also have to look at the fact that, you know, Joseph Newgarden is P1 in the championship right now. Won the first race, second in the second race. You look at Rossi, uh, fifth in the first, ninth in the second. You look at Hunter Ray, obviously the, uh, the big smoky engine blow up at St. Pete. Uh, but then third at Coda most recently. Um, again, uh, tough times. You look at Will Power, third at St. Pete, but then obviously the uh, gearbox problem at Coda, 24th there. You know, Will, with a great podium, but then effectively finishing last, he's still sixth in the points. Uh, you look at Simon, who's had some struggles, but by no means I would say the same, and he's 13th in points could improve just something here definitely to respect in the sense that you know why is one driver faster than the other within a team on any given weekend got to look at the talent aspect first who can tap into it then you have the other part that's probably the, the second and most critical thomas and that's obviously or i should say obvious but that's the setup side driver talent in giving feedback it's really critical uh, being able to give your engineer a tight, visceral, accurate description of what the car is doing in key places on the circuit and how changes to the car might improve in one area but possibly detract from another. It's this translation and the ability to give the best possible translation of what is happening on track to a person who is not in the car, who is standing <laughs> standing on pit lane, that translation to give the engineer enough information to say, aha, I think we need to make this change or go with this plan, which is gonna give you the best possible performance, that is something that doesn't necessarily work perfectly every session. Uh, if you get off to a bad start in session one, for example, Thomas, well, you're then playing catch-up in session two in the second practice, and you might get a lot of it back, but you're still behind a little bit. You go into the third practice, you're probably throwing some bigger changes at it, uh, just hoping to get into the window, and if you do, great, you've caught up to what you missed out in the first practice session, but if you don't, you're probably going into qualifying not very confident, and then if that doesn't work out the way that you hope, you know, your race might not be everything that you wanted it to be. And so you go, hey, why isn't this driver, who's normally really good, having a great weekend? It, In theory, I guess I shouldn't say in theory, in practice you go, well, it's because of what happened in the race. They missed the setup, etc., etc. It might not be because of the calls the engineer made uh, Sunday morning for the settings to put on the car might actually trace it all the way back to the first practice session or another session where there was a time loss. They couldn't get through the various things they wanted to test and try to hone in and find uh, what really worked for them. Uh, those are kind of the two basic things. And it's an interesting thing, though, because as a former mechanic, engineer, whatever, in IndyCar, uh, I'm looking for trends at all times, and if you read whatever I write, you might notice that a lot of it is 
kind of trend-based, looking, trend-adjacent. Just trying to look at things. All right, what's happening? Is there a line we can connect to these things or not? And this is one of them. It's really interesting for me to see the arc each weekend where you go, wow, all right. So this driver was, I don't know, top three on Friday in both sessions, hovered in that general place on Saturday and through qualifying, did very well, maybe improved, uh, qualified second, and then come the race, well, they hovered in that place and ended up getting into the lead and winning. And you go, cool, started strong, stayed strong, finished strong. You look at others and go, whoo, <laughs> did you guys mistakenly put the gateway oval set up going into Barber this weekend? Uh, what happened? And they're 24th and last to open uh, the first session and the second session. Who knows? Maybe they're 18th and you go, whoo, boy, that's a long trip to get to where you wanted to be. And maybe by the race, they get to fifth. You go, all right, boy. So fifth, not a win, not even a podium compared to the other team that started strong and stayed and finished strong awesome result for them you just look at least i look at and go ah, but that other team whoa in theory from where they started out with friday morning to where they finished in the race they picked up 19 positions boy they learned a lot what happened what they do wrong to start that way what did they do to improve to uh, latch on to something that worked so i don't know if that's of any interest to you all but Definitely worth, if these things do intrigue you, just start looking at some of those things. Hey, Mateus Laced, you know, I don't know if I've seen him really high up on Fridays, but there's often a little bit of an arc of improvement, improvement, and, you know, what's happening there? Uh, James Hinchcliffe, we often see, is not necessarily right up front to start a weekend, but they will find their way. One of the things where you go, okay, well, you know, we would love to see the mayor with more wins. That only helps IndyCar. More folks know him, and they might follow him. Great. That's one of the things that they're tasked with doing. Graham Rahal's another. He said, look, I'm a horrible qualifier. Uh, we know that I often have to start farther back and have a bigger road, a greater amount of road to cover to get to the front. That's something they're working on. Lots of little things in here, Thomas, where you go, huh, all right, well... That's why this team or this driver uh, might not always be there. And maybe there's a reason why some folks are always there. Let's go to Mike Stoops, who says, Meyershank Racing, Harding Steinbrenner, and Bellardi partner with full-time teams. I assume they eventually want to go independent. If and when they do, doesn't it seem the full-time teams that they're partnered with are helping to create their future competition? What does the full-time team get out of the relationship? Another great question here, Mike. With the Meyer Shank team, that is truly an independent effort in terms of the, the functional team itself. 100% of the folks working on the Meyer Shank Racing, number 60 Honda driven by Jack Harvey, are employed by Meyer Shank Racing, work at their base in Ohio. The only a real function of a connection with a different and or bigger full-time team, that being Aeroschmidt-Peterson Motorsports, is that technical alliance. So that, if we're wondering the benefit, uh, if we look to Airschmidt peterson that's money. And I don't mean that in a cold way. I mean, every team needs money. If you have a smaller part-time team that is saying, hey, we know that it would only be in our best interest to show up with sharper data and or have the ability to 
tap into your team throughout the weekend and look at what you're doing, share data, improve what we're doing, fast track things a bit, you do it. They've done it. And I would say Jack, who's sitting 10th in the standings right now, um, really good call. So the money being spent there, certainly, certainly they're getting their return on it. Uh, with the Harding-Steinbrenner side, same exact thing to an even greater amount. Uh, they are indeed a, a, quote, independent team. Uh, they are their own entity. They're owned by themselves. But this relationship with Andretti Technologies, where they are getting just that, the same technology found on the four full-time Andretti cars, yeah, <laughs> Colton Herta's kind of becoming, you know, uh, although under a different team name, you know, that kid, you do need to look at him and what they're achieving as not necessarily 100% independent program but certainly under the andretti banner his engineer race engineer amazing race engineer nathan o'rourke is an andretti employee uh you know you look at the andretti staff involved there and the andretti uh physical technology going on to the car data sharing and whatnot um yeah there's crazy crazy value in that uh for that little team but obviously also for andretti autosport which is receiving money for those services and on the Bellardi front, you know, this is maybe a little bit less of a direct benefit uh, in terms of, hey, we're getting tons of data back because they are simply uh, Brian and uh, the Bird family and also Brad Hollinger. They're just directly hiring, partnering, and working with Dale Coin Racing. So it's a Dale Coin Racing car that they are co 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 entering on. And in this case, it's money being brought to Dale Coyne to put that third car on the grid. And knowing that Dale has been in the habit, uh, I would say it's a positive thing too, of renting out uh, third or fourth entries for the Indy 500. This is just simply them bringing money uh, as a part of a package with James Davison. And as uh, the three partners there who do not have their own IndyCar chassis, who do not have their own IndyCar team, well, uh, for the month of May, at least, they do uh, by signing on to be a part of the Dale Coin Racing program. So, uh, in all three instances, um, someone's getting money and someone's benefiting from it. And in terms of future competition, I mean, uh, no disrespect to Meyer Shank uh, racing the Harding Steinbrenner folks or Bellardi. I don't know if Roger Penske's losing any sleep about uh, the, the MSR or Bellardi going full-time. Obviously, Harding Steinbrenner are full-time, but you know, Chip Ganassi is not uh, sweating bullets right now. Um, hopefully, they would have reason to. They would have cause to any of the other teams uh, involved. But I guess we're talking Andretti Autosport. You know, I don't think they're sweating that. Uh, they're, if anything, happy to see. Uh, Colton Herta having won Coda and having maybe proven to other teams that, you know, if you want to be wise, come work with us, come spend money with us. We can be solution providers. I don't think the Aerosmith Motorsports team are, are worried about Shank. Uh, if they just view them as a partner and colleague. And we'll see what Davison does on the coin front. I mean, the kid's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Uh, I say that in a mostly positive way. I love the kid. I always have. I mean, I give him a hard time whenever I see him, but you know, that kid can drive, and I would expect him to do some, you know, impressive uh, things in their entry with Dale Coin Racing. I would hope he keeps it off the fence, and if that's the case, then you know what? This is nothing but a positive thing. Maybe they can keep doing it 
uh, for years to come. Let's go to Luke, who says this is probably more of a question for someone in IndyCar management, but does IndyCar have any plans to further market, market itself like Formula One did with their Netflix series? It seems to have paid off. I keep having non-racing fans ask me about F1 at random bars and uh, places where uh, it is playing on replay. And I reached out to a friend at IndyCar who said, uh, yeah, it was actually in discussion last year with Netflix about doing the same exact kind of thing around the Indy 500. Uh, he said, we've already been following up with Netflix about the interest in doing something similar like they're doing with the F1 docu-series around the IndyCar series, NTT IndyCar series as a whole. So that's really good to hear. Uh, let's see, you have a couple more for me, so let's knock them out. We're going to go to Adam Jensen. Adam says, I find IndyCar's rolling starts to be messy, as the field is rarely gridded up correctly. Is there a way IndyCar could rectify this? What a large light array, red to green, at the end of the front straights, uh, that the entire field can see work? Um, I know that having everything in order and everything lined up perfectly would probably really satisfy uh, some folks uh, who really, really want their peas separated from their carrots on the plate and they never touch one another. And so I totally get that. I'm not saying you're that guy, Adam. I'm just saying that's what came to mind here. Um, you know, I think of race starts, rolling starts at least, as being something where they have qualifying for a reason. And the person who has earned pole position not only controls the field, but I believe has earned the right to set the pace and then take off whenever they feel uh, it is appropriate. Some series mandate you must, you can only start accelerating in this particular zone. But I guess an IndyCar's particular case, Adam, I would just say that you know, to me this is part of the fun and the fact that it can be a little bit messy speaks to the gamesmanship, gameswomanship involved and also you know, when I'm watching a rolling start in IndyCar, I'm, while I am indeed watching the pole sitter to see when that person starts to accelerate, the minute they start to accelerate my eyes shift to second place, uh, third place directly behind the pole sitter. It shifts to how ready were the other ones to react and are they able to and capable of pouncing right away. So, you know, while I guess the everyone gridded correctly, I mean, I think they're all gridded correctly. Uh, I mean, I can't think of anyone being in the wrong position. But in terms of there being gaps, some people blowing the start. You know, I mentioned that Felix Rosenquist uh, dropped, just sank like a rock at the start of Coda. And it's something that I actually enjoy, not for him specifically, but just, hey, you can go forward like heck, make up a bunch of spots, you can fall behind. A uh, big part of this is being present and getting the timing right. And there are huge positives and huge negatives that come along with it. If everyone was truly held side by side, perfect distance, nose to tail, and so on, and everyone just took off in lockstep, you know, I would say that it would certainly look more organized, 
but I don't know if it would actually improve the excitement or do anything other than maybe take away the odds of some big thrills either swinging towards a positive or negative. So uh, I'm sure they're, they could do something like that with a large light array at them, but I don't know if I've really heard anyone say IndyCar's starts, rolling starts are bad and detract from the show, and that must be a thing that is fixed. So if that is something that more people say, knowing how IndyCar has been behaving in recent years, they would absolutely look for something to rectify that. Uh, so again, if there are more that maybe fall in your camp than mine, Adam, I'd say tell IndyCar. They do listen. Let them know, hey, guys, you can do better. And uh, if there is a way, they probably will. Let's go to, let's see, two final questions. One from Ed Joris who says, any chance that Catherine Legg and Meyershank Racing use some of the unspent Caterpillar Le Mans money to make a run at the Indy 500? And for those who aren't uh, big sports car followers, uh, the MSR team submitted an entry for the 24 Hours of Le Mans uh, with Jackie Heinricher, the co-owner of the entry that Cat Catherine Legg drives in IMSA and Caterpillar was meant to be the sponsor for that. The folks who are in charge of running the 24 Hours of Le Mans said no. And uh, they, not only did they not accept their entry, they placed the uh, MSR team ninth on a list of 10 alternates, which pretty much guaranteed it's never going to happen. Not in 2019. Um, what I don't know, Ed, is if there was the uh, was a, a fat check sitting there from Caterpillar waiting to be spent, uh, or if it was just a, a commitment that if you do gain an entry, then there would be money to spend. Uh, if it is indeed money that is sitting in Jackie's account, then yeah, I'd love to see it. I don't know if it's so much tied to uh, the MSR team or Jackie or Caterpillar, but yes, Catherine, as a potential Indy 500 participant. Keep hearing her name. I know that there are a lot of folks who would love to see Kat there every year, and so would I. She's awesome. The one that I hear and continue to hear mention of is in association with what has been presented as probably the longest odds of materializing, and that is the second potential. Second Harding-Steinbrenner racing Honda. So we won't rehash all of that with the Pato thing and the car was never real. Was it ever real? Was it ever going to happen? Did they actually have two cars? And, you know, I'll just sidestep all that and say that, yes, there is actual conversation still going on about whether um, HSR might put a second car uh, on the entry list for the Indy 500. And I know that, I, again, uh, I've heard Kat's name mentioned a couple times as to is there a way to make it happen? Could we make it happen? And I'm not saying I've heard that from Kat, just heard it from others in the paddock. And the last thing I'll just throw in here, Ed, is uh, team president Brian Barnhart has also been rather upfront in telling us that we aren't interested in a second entry unless it's holy cow money, unless it's some sort of, boy, that's, that's really going to help the primary program here with Colton. So uh, if there's another thing to draw from here with Catherine Legg, it's that despite being awesome, I have not heard of, uh, of her walking around with holy cow money to offer a team like the uh, Harding-Steinbrenner outfit. If she did, man, <laughs> it'd 
based on Colton at Coda, based on what we see from Andretti Autosport every year at the 500, in theory, that would be a pretty amazing car to get into. That would be, a, you know, effectively yet another Andretti Autosport car. So, in all these things mentioned, yeah, if there is someone willing to put holy cow money up, uh, I would love to see Catherine in that entry. I'd also love to see Stefan Wilson. I'd also love to see Run Down the Line. A whole bunch of really good folks uh, in a car like that that has a strong possibility of being able to win. All right, we're going to close here with our man Kevin Frederico. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, Kev, thanks for being someone who every week is making sure we have great questions to go through here. Uh, you said, hey, Marshall, for collectors who own ex-champ cars and Indy cars, um, unlike their F1 counterparts that tend to come with the motors, what options do owners have for getting a hold of a Honda, Toyota, Mercedes-Benz, etc., to uh, power their X-Cart or Champ Car chassis? Uh, Kevin asks, do they use Cosworth motors? Does Cosworth even sell or support those 2.65-liter turbo V8 motors? Well... You've struck upon the great answer here, and that is, yes, Cosworth can indeed uh, do that, uh, is known to do that. I'm told it's not cheap, but, you know, it wouldn't, shouldn't probably be cheap. If we're talking about some rather amazing eight, 900 plus horsepower motors from the heyday of cart, uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't think that'd be, you know, 15 grand on uh, Bring a Trailer. Uh, and plugging in with your old Windows 95 laptop, you're going to need some, you know, some serious, uh, serious folks to take care of a serious motor in one of those cars. But yeah, that is kind of the go-to option. And, you know, I guess counter to this, probably mentioned this a couple times in the past, but our pal Dario Franchitti, for example, has one of his uh, Team Cool Green Renard cart indie cars uh, that was powered by Honda. So he has that in his private collection. What he does not have is the Honda engine to make it go forward, or backwards, or sideways. And, you know, Dario is as close to uh, a Honda family member, I think, as you can just about find. And yet, um, making a motor available for him to use uh, on personal occasions to go out and drive it and have fun it still hasn't happened don't know if it ever will uh, might even be a, a mild source of frustration so could uh, trying to bolt a Cosworth in place that would obviously involve some changes so he wouldn't be able to run the car in a hundred percent original configuration but could that be the pathway forward yeah uh, I don't know if there's any I don't know if there's anything about bolting in a Cosworth that would make his heart sing because he loved those Honda turbo motors so much in the cart era. So that might be part of it as well. Hey, if I can't have the thing in the back of it that just made me smile and win races and gave me all these glorious memories, you know, it's either that or nothing. That might be a little part of it as well, Kev. But yeah, Cosworth is uh, is the place. As for selling, though, I'm not sure if they sell. Lease would probably be more of the uh, the option there. If we're talking the kind of the modern '90s uh, version, the the X uh, XD XB, lots of XFE, uh, lots of Xs and that kind of stuff. Not the original DFX that really dominated cart in the 1980s and even the latter stages 
of the 1970s. But yeah, I think that would be more of a lease. Uh, there are plenty of folks who own their older uh, DFXs, and those are just all kinds of awesome, too. So that's what you guys got for me for this week on the good old week in IndyCar, presented to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. As I mentioned at the outset, no barber for me this weekend, but uh, I will be tuning in and watching as much as I can. And uh, yeah, I can't wait. This is going to be a cool one, a really, really cool one. Uh, with all that said, what else? Yeah, I think that's about it. Uh, I don't want to keep hitting you over the head too much with it, but if you can, check out MarshallPruittPodcast.com, the home for every podcast we've ever posted, every episode of The Week in IndyCar, every episode of you name it. And yeah, give it a look. You might find some gems in there. I have truly forgotten some of the 500-plus episodes we have captured and posted, so uh, it might sound silly, but even I have enjoyed looking through and going, oh, yeah. I spoke to that guy about that thing. So, marshallpruittpodcast.com, some fun to be had there. Kill some time. You know, I'm sure some of you are at work, you know, on a bus. Um, I don't know if you're cycling and some other things that I hear, but if you're in the workplace, got your earbuds in, you're really just trying to kill the day. Honestly, <laughs> marshallpruittpodcast.com was kind of created with you in mind of the how to make that day flow by without tipping off your boss or anyone else because there's hundreds upon hundreds of hours of uh, legacy content going back to 2016. So, all right. With all that said, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast presented to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and also our dear pals at torontomotorsports.com. Thank you for listening.